Cripple Content Creations presents bonus content! Hi friends, it's Andrew Gerza of Disability After Dark, and I'm excited to bring you a bonus episode of a show that I started in October on a whole new feed, and then nobody really listened to that feed, so I didn't want to I didn't want to kill the idea, and I wanted to bring it to you. So back in October, I started a little show called When I Was a Disabled Kid. And basically, I wanted to talk to disabled adults about their childhoods and find out how their childhoods connected to disability and vice versa and all those things and how their disabled childhoods made them who they were. So I put out the podcast and I put out a teaser and I did all those things. And then the more and more I looked at the numbers, the more and more I realized that nobody was listening to it. But I really, really liked it and I didn't want it to die. So I've decided to release episodes on the Patreon for Disability After Dark at patreon.com slash content. But I was going through the archives of shows that I recorded and didn't put through, and I realized I had the very first episode of the show just sitting there, and I was like, well, somebody should hear it. I know I have some great listenership with Disability After Dark. So I decided as a little treat, I was going to do the very first episode on the feed right now. So you're going to hear the intro for for when I was a disabled kid, and then every month I'm going to release an episode or two of when I was a disabled kid where I talk to disabled adults about their childhood. So basically, if you want to be on this Patreon-exclusive show that will come out on Patreon whenever they're done and then once a month on the regular feed, let me know. Head over to disabilityafterdark at gmail.com let me know you want to do the show and I'd love to have you it's just something I'm trying out to thank you for being such a great listener of Disability After Dark and supporting disability content and I also love that it has nothing to do with sex really I mean it sometimes does but very rarely so this is a little surprise episode of when I was a disabled kid with my friend Carrie Wade enjoy Triple Content Creations presents When I Was a Disabled Kid with your host, Andrew Gerza. This is a show about what it was like to be a disabled kid. This show will explore the growing pains of growing up disabled. The sometimes funny, sometimes awkward, and sometimes defining moments that turned us into the awesome disabled people we are today. So sit back, relax, and let's go back in time to find out what happened when I was a disabled kid. Hey there, just want to give you a brief heads up that this episode of When I Was a Disabled Kid might contain some coarse language. Just wanted you to be aware, but now, on with the show. Well, hello there, and welcome to the very first episode of When I Was a Disabled Kid. 
My name is Andrew Gerza, and I'm a disability awareness consultant and crippled content creator. My job out of my little tiny apartment here in Toronto, Canada, is to bring the lived experience of disability to you. You may recognize my voice because I do another podcast called Disability After Dark, where I talk all about sexuality and disability, but that's not what this show is going to be about, and I wanna, I'm want to. i so excited for this one, so let me tell you what it's about, and then we'll do have our very first guest. Okay, let's get started. So, I've always been fascinated by other disabled people telling me their stories, telling me how they grew up, telling me their experiences, telling me what how disability shaped who they were, and one day I was sitting on my computer looking for other topics and things to write about or things to present about or something, and all of a sudden an idea popped in my head. I wanted to, to learn about the history of disabled people, and not just history, I wanted to learn about our histories, so I wanted to learn about our childhoods, what it meant to be a disabled kid. I love hearing our stories, and I realized that we don't often hear about disabled kids and their stories, and we, we, we only hear about disabled kids if we're talking about cures, or we're talking about fundraisers, or we're talking about something Jerry Lewis-esque. Otherwise, we don't really hear about disabled kids, and, and I wanted to delve deep into our histories as disabled kids and find out how our childhoods and our disabilities enmesh themselves and how they turned us into the awesome disabled people that we are today. So, the premise of this show is super simple. Each episode, I'm going to sit down with a new friend of mine, an activist, a disability scholar, somebody who I know, someone I admire doing great disability work, and I'm going to ask them to go back in time with me to recount the growing pains of growing up disabled and tell me funny, awkward, and defining stories about their experiences as a disabled kid. From there, we'll get to learn what made them to be the awesome disabled person that they are today. And that's really it. That's the show. That's the whole premise. That was my plan to just to have a conversation about disabled childhood. There was really there's no hook, there's no gimmick, there's no big giant payoff. Just a fun show about disabled stories, which I think is so important and so needed. So, well, let's get started. I got I have the first episode ready to go, and let me tell you all about it. For this very first interview, I sit down with my good friend and disability activist, Carrie Wade. We talk about her childhood, we talk about growing up in Southern California in a warmer climate as a kid with CP, we talk about surgeries and medical stuff when you're a disabled kid, we talk about her coming out as a queer kid with disabilities, all these things come into play here, and it's a great glimpse into Carrie's childhood as a disabled kid. So without further ado, here's the very first episode of this show, When I Was a Disabled Kid, right now. Carrie Wade, hello. Hello. So nice to talk to you again. It's, well, you were on another show that I do, but that is not why, that is not why you are here today. Um, but I love that. I loved that we know each other. And anyway, anyway, this is a whole new venture. Thank you for being on the very first episode of When I Was a Disabled Kid. Of course. It's an honor. I'm happy to be here. So, so excited. So tell me, tell me in the audience who you are. Introduce yourself, please. 
Sure. So my name is Carrie Wade. I am a writer and a disability activist. I am a staff writer at a queer feminist online magazine called autostraddle.com. And I also work at a disability rights nonprofit in the Washington, D.C. area. I've been doing disability justice advocacy work for, I would say, it's been somewhere between five and ten years now in some sort of professional capacity. Um, I just turned 30, which is a big deal. So, hey. yeah, finally. Um, I finally feel like I'm arriving at the chronological age I've been in my head forever, so that's very exciting. Amazing. Um, but, yeah, I am... I. I'm in DC by way of California, and I have been doing um, advocacy work professionally for about five years. And you are correct that I was a previous guest of yours, and I'm always happy to be back with you. So thanks for having me. Anytime. You're, I, you're as you know, I could gush about you forever, but you're somebody that <laughs> I look up to quite a lot for a lot of what I do. So this, I'm, I'm so happy you're here for this new venture, this new thing that I'm trying out, this new show that is, I don't even know how to, I don't even know what it's going to be. But basically, so let's start and um, sure. tell me about Carrie's childhood. Sure. Yeah, we're going to figure this whole thing out together, I guess, right? We're doing it, uh, yeah. My childhood. So I did grow up in California. I grew up in Southern California. And I have incredible parents and an incredible family and that's probably the first thing that one should know about my childhood. I have been incredibly privileged to have a family that embraced every part of me throughout my entire life um, as I have grown and changed as a person. They have always been right there with me every step of the way. Um, in childhood, the fact that I have cerebral palsy was obviously a pretty big factor in the way that I experienced the world. Um, as it usually is, as it usually yeah, is. Yeah, it, it tends to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, and it's still that way now in adulthood, obviously, but it has sort of changed um, how it manifests itself in my day-to-day. -day. But my parents were incredibly supportive um, of me and all of the different endeavors that I wanted to take on. They, It's always been a very positive outlook in my house and not in a patronizing way at all. Um, they have always been very focused on my empowerment and my development as a person. Um, and even as a kid, that was very true. They wanted to make sure that I had all the opportunities that my non-disabled peers had, that my sister had, um, that sort of appealed to me in the world. So I was very, very lucky um, to have them as parents. I still am. And I was very, very lucky to have an older sister who was very supportive of me and very understanding of, you know, the demands that the fact that I had a disability made on our family's time. Um, she's always been incredibly patient and incredibly supportive. And it was great growing up with all of them. And it was great growing up in a place where I could be outside all year round and have, you know, full access to the world at sort of any point that I wanted. I think that was something that my parents were hoping for, um, raising their kids in California. They had mentioned to me that part of the reason why they wanted to move to Southern California was so we could be on the playground at any time of year. Um, and I thought that that was a very interesting insight, especially given that I did wind up being born with a disability. Yeah. Um, 
you know, and now that I live somewhere where there's weather, right, as an adult at like 30 years old, I'm finally experiencing things like snow um, regularly for the first time. And so I'm really seeing how that can affect you. And so as a kid, you know, my world was pretty big. It was very much enabled by my parents as well as where I grew up geographically. And I was very fortunate in both regards. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. Because I'm just thinking of like when I was a kid growing up, like, I did. I grew up in weather, like mm-hmm. so. I knew. I know, like what it's like to be like. Oh, it's winter. Like, yeah, I gotta go do this thing, and I can't get my like chair out. I, I can't tell you how many times when I was a kid, like going out with my brothers. We have a, We had a big backyard where I grew up, so uh, we'd go out to play, and I would go with them. And then five minutes later, my chair would get stuck in the mm-hmm. snow, and. Everybody, everybody would be like, oh, man, got to put yeah. it in or, like, down the hill to get him out of the snow. Or, like, I wouldn't go out because the snow would mean that I couldn't. So, like, when I was a kid, my mom would always say, like, we have to get you to warmer climate when you're older. Like, warmer is yeah. better for you. She had the same thought because, like, they understood that snow is going to mean that your disability is going to make things extra hard for you. Right. Right. Exactly. Um. So tell me more about you. T- you've said in your pre-questionnaire that the family, your family dynamic, was awesome. But you also said they're they're like so supportive that they're almost too supportive. Can you <laughs> elaborate on that a little bit for me? Sure. That sort of exposed um, became exposed in my later years when I was dealing with coming out. Um, I am an openly gay woman. I've been completely out to everybody since I was sixteen, and I knew that, you know, because of how supportive my parents had been in my childhood and how open and accepting and affirming they had always been of everyone that we met, I I knew that it wasn't personally going to be an issue for my parents that I was gay. Um, but then when I came out, there were things like the L word became family hour. That's sort of like a legendary <laughs> fact. Oh, no. I know. It's as embarrassing as it sounds. And I mean, I understand, you know, that's probably the best problem that you could have, right? As a queer kid growing up with parents that are so into the fact that this is who you are and they want to support you that they decide that watching the L word together is how they're going to do that. Because <laughs> um, I mean, the L word was pretty, like, the L word was pretty racy for, like, yeah, for, like, yeah. early aught, you know, television. Right. Mm-hmm. It's pretty racy now. I mean, if you're, you know, you're watching it as a 16-year-old, 17-year-old, it's weird enough watching it by yourself, and then you add your parents in, and it's just like, whoa, oh my god, what's happening? Um, so there is such a thing as going overboard <laughs> with the support um, of your child's sexuality, and my parents did manage that. Um, I say that mostly in jest, of course. Like, I, I am incredibly lucky that my parents were so accepting of me right from the get-go and I'm glad that you know they were around to embarrass me just as they should you know I I think that every kid queer or otherwise deserves a little bit of good-natured embarrassment for their parents so I definitely got that um yeah I mean in terms of my disability I think that they are just the right amount of supportive actually um when i when my parents finally empty nested and and were downsizing to a new house they gave me a bunch of um their books from their bookshelf in our childhood home and one of the books that my mom gave me is no pity by joe shapiro which is one of the seminal accounts of the disability rights movement um in america and kind of the 
you know, 70s through the 90s, basically. And when I opened my mom's copy of the book, there were a couple of um, different pieces of paper that were stuck into the book. And I took a look at them and they were pages and pages of her handwritten notes from when she had read it and about all of the different milestones along the way and the movement and how she was going to help um, leverage them for me, you know, how she was going to learn to be a better advocate for her kid. And that was such an amazing moment um, to see this, you know, because that she gave me this book, like as I was sort of getting started in my own advocacy career. And so um, it was really incredible to be able to read through not just the book, but to read through my mom's notes and kind of see how her ideology around what it meant for me to be disabled and what it meant for her to be my mom, um, sort of how that came to be. And I think, you know, I still have it, obviously, I still have the book, and yeah. obviously, I still, <laughs> I still get those notes. So that that's an amazing thing to come across um, from your parent. And I think that, you know, that's really reflective of how my both of my parents were throughout my childhood around this. I mean, that's, that's so cool. Like, my mom had a book in our house, and I don't know if she made any notes around it, but she had a book in our in our house similar to that that was like how to take care of your special needs kid from like the eighties. And like I remember we, when I was younger, we found it in the house one day, and I I we found it and or I found it somewhere. It was on our bookshelf, and I didn't. I've never told her that I found it, but I was like, oh, it's like to see how your parents are navigating the fact that they have a disabled kid because usually, usually as the disabled kid, you're the only one who's the disabled kid, right. usually. So in my case, at that time, I was the only one. Um, things have changed in my family since then, but at the time, I was the only disabled, you know, physically disabled child in the room. So mm-hmm. to to see to see those little moments where your, your family is trying to come to terms with all this stuff and trying to figure it out with resources from back in the day, some of which are not super, like, are not super helpful. Some are, but most <laughs> sure. most are like, oh no, you're the kids disabled. It's the 80s. Oh dear. So <laughs> to see like that kind of stuff and to then see your family kind of dealing with that is really those are those are the moments as, as disabled kids you go, oh, oh, this mm-hmm. is, they didn't just they didn't just start out this way. They had to be taught how to how to manage all this. Right. Absolutely. And I think it's a testament to both of my parents that. They both did the work, but I never saw it. You know what I mean? Like, they definitely did their homework. They definitely knew what kind of life they wanted me to have, and they were going to do everything they could to help provide that, just like, you know, the best parents do. Um, But I never saw them struggling with it. You know, there was never this feeling that I was somehow a burden on our household or that they wished that things had been different. Um, It was always just you are part of our family and we are going to be a unit and you know this is something that we all contend with every day but it's not anything that anybody ever said anything negative about it was always just you know you're going to find your own way to navigate the world even if it's a little different from other people's and that's fine you know and they never there was never a moment where I felt like I was burdening them or that they wished that I had been a different person than I am. And I, I realized that that is both incredibly lucky um, and incredibly rare and also a huge privilege. I think that I mean that in both the poetic and literal senses. I understand that a lot of different types of privilege have to come together in order for you to be part of a family that can literally afford to be that supportive of you, you yeah, know, and not... Yeah 
not show any cracks in the facade. So that's not to say that, oh, I just lucked out and, you know, that's all there is. It's obviously a lot of luck and a lot of privilege coming together. Um, that being said, it was really, you know, I never had to consider whether I was putting my parents or my sister through some kind of undue hardship just by existing. Um, and I realized how fortunate I am to have that be the case. Yeah, I think you and I are cut from from this a really similar cloth as kids, mm-hmm. and I think all disabled kids can relate to that. And I mean, again, you you're right in that there's a lot of privilege there. I would hope that many disabled kids had the same experience. I know that many of us haven't, but I would hope that a lot of us have, where your parents were figuring it out, but they were like, I can't let my kids see. I got to show my kid that, however they are, it's gonna be all right, and I'm gonna be there for mm-hmm. them. And, and my family did the same. We. Used, and I'm remembering specifically, we used to go to, every summer, we like every fall, we go to an apple orchard around mm-hmm. this time, and we go apple picking, which, which looking back on it now, was the most inaccessible thing for, sure. for me <laughs> in, my, in my, like, 80s wheelchair to go do, because apples mean mud, which means the chair gets stuck, right. which means Andrew can't move. So all I remember is right around this time of year, we go to the apple orchard, and mm-hmm. I would get stuck, but my mom was like, no, no, you're coming. Like, there's no question you're coming. The family's going, you're coming. And so she never showed me, like, she never showed me that it was tough. Um, mm-hmm. She's told me a sense that, like, we built a house for you. Like, they're, they're all, the reason that I grew up in a bungalow was because they wanted me to be able to get into every room. And right. they wanted me to be with the family. But to get that house, they had to go to the bank and beg and cry and like do all mm-hmm. this stuff and be like my kid's severely disabled never once did i think that it that anything was wrong even though right they were constantly struggling to to get by um with this disabled kid that mm-hmm. there were yeah. no, there were like no resources for constantly were they struggling and they never let it show my mom made sure that i was my mom and dad made sure that i was included in everything even yep. if it was super hard for them to do it even if it meant that they had to go out of their way to do something for the other kids that they would never do, if mm-hmm. it meant that Andrew was there, they would figure it out. Yeah, that's wonderful. Yeah, it was. So I, I, it's so nice to hear that like both of our parents made sure that we were totally included. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that I also really touched on in your questionnaire, because uh, I'm, I'm a pretend professional podcaster and so that's what I do now is I send out I would say you're not pretending I would say you've crossed over you're you know I'm claim not, your power I'm doing the thing now I'm trying to think yeah. um so but in in the pretendy questionnaire that I sent to you uh sure. I, you had said that you you had a lot of medical experiences as a kid and <laughs> what I what I find really interesting is I've been sending a lot of questionnaires to guess, and every single one of them is in like, yeah, so my childhood was like really defined by a lot of hospital stuff, a lot of medical stuff around my disability. Um, yep. Can you tell me how the medical experiences shaped you around disability when you were a kid? Sure. So I had a few different surgeries as a kid. Um, I I think there were maybe three, but there was really one that I could really remember um, because it was late enough where I sort of understood 
what was going on. And that was the summer before fifth grade. I've had other surgeries since then, but that was sort of the main pivot point childhood wise. Um, I think that that surgery, because I understood what was happening for the first time and I understood that, you know, they were going to cut me open and that I was going to be in casts all summer and, you know, being in hip to toe length casts all summer in Southern California where it's hot, you know, that's where the weather comes back to get you, right? Like that now you're in these full length casts all summer and it's hell. So um, I knew that that was what was ahead and I was not excited about it. Um, And I, I remember the night before I was supposed to go to the hospital to, you know, have this happen. I hid in the closet, which is an excellent metaphor now that I'm gay. Um, But at the time, that wasn't part of it. Um, That's just great in hindsight. I hid in the closet to try to stop my parents from finding me and taking me there. Um, And of course they did. Right, of course they found me. Of course, of course. Um, And I had to go, you know, sort of kicking and screaming through this experience. And, you know, it was hard, it was hard all summer being stuck in this situation that I really didn't want to be in. Um, I had enough understanding to know that I didn't, that I wasn't happy about it, but I didn't really have enough long range understanding to get how it was going to be beneficial to me later in life. You know, now I look back on it and I'm like, Oh, it's probably a really good thing that I did this, you know, that my parents, this choice. And what kind of surgery was it? It was a few different things. Um, there was a hamstring lengthening that oh, happened. I did that. I had that when I was like nine. It's horrible. It's horrible. And, you know, so there was that. There was also um, they took a bone out of my hip and put it in my feet to give me an arch because I didn't have one, um, which is kind of cool. I mean, again, I look back on it and I'm like, wow, oh, that's really weird. I didn't even know they could do that. But at the time, it was just really inconvenient and gross. Um, and so I wound up, you know, in a hospital bed in our living room all summer. And I think that, you know, I think the the surgeries that came even later on, the, the ones in early adulthood, um, affected me even more profoundly in this way. But I think that that was sort of the first time that I understood that my body, I wasn't necessarily completely in charge of it. Um, and I think as a kid growing up, Uh, Despite the incredibly supportive environment that I was raised in, I did have a lot of frustration around my body and not being able to do what I wanted to do all the time just because my body had other plans, which I'm sure is something that you're going to hear from future guests quite often. Oh, yeah, and And I'm going to agree with every single guest because, you know, and just hearing you say that, that's the trouble with having such a supportive nest to grow up in is that you, the nest is so reaffirming that disability is okay and don't worry that the minute you step outside the nest and go out into like the the cold stark reality of the world you really quickly realize that not everybody's cool with disability in the way that your folks are and how do you manage that right so there's that you know there's sort of the external perception and then there's also just sort of what's happening within your own body right and i think that that was the one of the first moments when it was clear to me that not everything was in my control. Um, and I wound up, 
you know, the, the year after the school year after the surgery happened, which was fifth grade, um, I was going to physical therapy all the time as part of recovery, you know, cause it sort of overlapped with the start of school and I would end up getting stomach aches and going to the nurse a lot, which I now recognize was the beginnings of anxiety. You know, like you can look back as an adult and it makes so much sense that I would just sort of be this anxious ball of nerves because I had just been through this huge thing, you know, and I think that no matter how supportive your home environment is, a big medical event is just inherently destabilizing for you. And I, I think as a kid, it was very weird uh, to sort of contend with the idea that I wasn't necessarily in charge of what my body was going to do. And that sometimes I just needed to give myself over and understand that I was going to have to go through some difficult things. And that's still a hard thing to contend with as an adult, you know, like, I have days where I wake up and everything is just achy. You know, I didn't do anything. I'm just tired. And, and it's really frustrating. Yeah. And sometimes CP can be a bitch that way. Like, yeah, okay. I get it. So, and, it is. and like also the narrative, it's tough because the narrative that our parents give us, the, the supportive parents of disability, and I'm sure I'll hear differing stories as the, as the show goes on, but our parents, in our case, both told us like, you know, you, your disability doesn't mean you can't do anything. Your disability, and like that, it's tough to reconcile that when like you're you, you realize quickly when you have a surgery that oh, maybe they weren't right. Like right, exactly, it's more complicated than that, right? Um, and you know, my parents were not not by any means the cloying type of people that kind of oversell that narrative of you can do anything, you know, and, and turn it into this thing that is actually designed to inspire able-bodied people and make them feel better about themselves. Like that's not what my parents were about at all. Like they were genuinely, and so is my sister, genuinely about me having a great life, you know, but even that can't stop a major surgery right before fifth grade from sort of derailing what you have going on, you know, and you can't really, I, I wouldn't say that I was a carefree child. <laughs> and I think that part of that is because I was constantly sort of navigating this, you know, alternate reality from the rest of my peers. There was all this other stuff that I just had to think about. And, you know, I think that there were some things about me as a kid, I was slightly more relaxed around certain things. Cause I think the magnitude of you know, my experience hadn't really hit me yet. So, you know, I would do things like be on sports teams with non-disabled people. And I think that, you know, as an adult, I was put in that situation. I would give it a lot more thought, <laughs> you know, before I did that, yeah. as opposed to when I was a kid. I was like, oh, duh, you know, because I was raised in such an affirming world. It was like, of course, I'm going to do this. And, you know, I like sports. I'm going to play. Um, and so I think that there are many admirable things about childhood me that I'm actually trying to tap back into now as a grown up. Um, but it is Tell me so. interesting. Oh, okay. Um, I would say, you know, that general, I'm just going to do it feeling that a lot of kids have, I think, because you don't really know how dangerous things can be yet. You know, you, you're experiencing things for the first time, and you don't really know that, you know, a certain decision you make could be risky or whatever. You just don't really have that perspective. Um, and I think that in some ways, because of my disability and things that around it um, that have happened I have sort of overcorrected <laughs> in that way, and I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit more of uh, 
an adult who can just do things on a whim and be spontaneous or just give the reason I do something is because I want to do it, uh, which is very much how I was as a kid. I just did things because I liked them. Right. Um, before, like, you were kind of hit over the head with ableism and hit over the right, head with, like, right. social justice cues. Like, I sort of wish that I, I mean, I was the same way as a kid. I would, I would, I didn't care what anybody thought, and I just did what I wanted to because I was a mm-hmm. kid, and no one had told me that I couldn't, and like, no one had told me that I wasn't going to be included. And I mean, I, I felt that way as a kid. Like, I felt like I did feel the sting of ableism, but I didn't know what it was. It, it didn't, right. have, it didn't have a name, so it didn't feel as bad when you know, you because you're just like, oh, that kid doesn't like me because I'm a kid. Whatever. All right. Mm-hmm. Now it's like, yeah. Oh, I know what this is now, and I I have to contend with it. Right. No, that's so well said. I think that's exactly right. It's, you know, obviously ableism did crop up in my life as a child, um, but it looked different, first of all, but it also felt different. Um, And there is definitely power in being able to identify it now when it happens um, and sort of be an adult person who has steeled themselves against that and knows how to have a conversation around it. But as a kid, it was just, kind of, I was just living my life, you know, and I think that there is definitely value in that. I also spent a lot of time outside as a child, which is what another thing that I'm trying to do more of. Um, I think as, you know, a lot of people, right, as you build your professional life and you just get busier, you know, you have more demands on your time, you spend more time inside. And I've been definitely trying to embrace the, um, that kid who just loved being outdoors and playing sports and being active um, and felt like she had a right to take up space in the world. I think that that is something that I, I haven't lost it as an adult. And I think that I'm gaining even more of it back now in like the past year or so. Um, but I think that that's definitely something that I've wanted to kind of reconfirm about myself. Yeah, I know. And I agree with you with the outside thing. Like I, I used to love being outside in the summers when mm-hmm. I was a kid and I used to, this is gonna sound so dorky, but when I was a kid, I used to love like I used to love going into forests and pretending. Oh yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. going into like wooded areas with my chair mm-hmm. and pretending that like oh, there's a secret. There's a you know this is hugely foreshadowing into my queerness too. But there, <laughs> I would pretend that there was like fairies in there and like, mm-hmm. secret magical things where I could like run away. Like, and I'd want to go into these places that I made up in my head that were magical and 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 like go and see the unicorns and go and see the fairies. And it was, it's such a weird metaphor for, like, I understood that ableism was happening to me all the time, and if I could get into these magical worlds that I created, then maybe the stuff that I was feeling that I couldn't name or didn't know how to, to mm-hmm. work around would go away. Right. No, completely. I, I was the same kind of fantastical child um, and a bit of an adventurer. Um, my grandmother had a cabin in... Um, New England when we were growing up and my sister actually spent a lot more time there than I did including when I was recovering from that surgery my parents were like you should go spend the summer with grandma because it'll be a great experience and also you know they needed the space and the time to devote to me and and the stuff that I was going through I didn't understand that at the time but I, I get it now um, so I'm and sure there was like a touch of like resentment there a little bit like right oh, oh I'm, I'm sure there was yeah, yeah. But she did get to go to spend a lot of summers at this cabin, which was a really amazing place um, for our family. And everybody has some really fond memories of it. And I remember 
very clearly, you know, climbing through the woods and getting dirty and, you know, just being a lot more rough and tumble and rambunctious than I am as an adult. And I think that a lot of the reservation I have around that kind of thing now does come from understanding that I am disabled and understanding differently sort of what that means. Um, and I think it's wise, you know, to be like very in tune with your body and understand its limits. But at the same time, like that, you know, there is that part of my personality. It was there in childhood and it's still there. So trying to go back and put that more in the foreground, I think is really important. Yeah. And I don't think, I, I think it's tough being a social justice person or an activist like, mm -hmm. we're, like we are, because then you, you get, you learn all these, this terminology and then it's stuck in your mind and you can't let it go. Whereas when you were a kid, there was no name for it. So it didn't, it wasn't as intense as it is when you're an adult because you didn't, nobody, like in the nineties, nobody was talking about ableism. It was there and happening all the time, but it wasn't, there was no cool term for it. So in a way, I'm glad there wasn't because if there was, and I knew what it was, I probably would have felt it much harder than I did. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a lot of power um, and progress to be made from naming something, right? So I am glad that I am smarter now about, you know, disability justice and social justice overall than I was when I was nine, uh, for instance. But I think that there's a way to bring those two worlds together. Um, they're not mutually exclusive. And I think the fact that I understand my disability and my queerness and my gender and my whiteness and, you know, all sorts of different things about me, um, I understand them in a higher level way now. And unequivocally, that is a good thing. But also bringing in that, you know, child aspect of my personality of understanding that I know all these things and I can just have a good time because I want to and I can take up space in the world and I can be out there with other people just living my life and having a good time like making sure that you know how to integrate those things I think is is the goal yeah and it can be super hard to integrate those things and like mm -hmm. and that's why I, I that's why I think I love 80s and 90s stuff so much because it's like it brings back this weird sense oh, sure. of not just nostalgia for the time obviously um, but the nostalgia of like hey I was a disabled kid in the 80s and 90s and like there was like I remember being super disabled, but not feeling as disabled as I do now, both mm -hmm. socially and mentally and like academically. Disability wasn't the thing that I was constantly doing. And like, I never imagined I'd be doing this and it didn't ever cross my mind. And now I can't see myself doing anything else, but I also kind of, I do also crave that like innocence of not knowing any better mm -hmm. and, yeah. and not really understanding. Cause it, it would just, it would, it, and bringing a little bit of that back with what I don't know now would be a lot, I think, mm -hmm. much, it would make me as a disabled, like, as a disabled adult, I think a little bit happier. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I've taken to recently um, listening to a lot of music from my immediately preteen up through, like, mid-teen years. All right, so uh, now you have to tell me what it is. <laughs> well, when I was a kid, I, and this is, like, you know, late elementary school, early middle school, I was really into both video games and extreme sports. And so one of the things that I rediscovered recently um, is the soundtrack from the Tony Hawk's Pro Skater video games. <laughs> and I've been listening to that when I'm like working out at the gym or whatever. And 
It's so funny to be able to go back into that space. First of all, realizing that I still know all of these songs, even though I never intentionally listened to the vast majority of them. They were just this ambient noise in my life for so many years um, that I know them intimately by now. Um, and just sort of being able to reconnect with that time when, you know, I had these interests and I had hobbies. I think as an adult, it can be hard to remember that it's important to do stuff that is just for fun. Um, so that music really helps me. That's the concrete example that I can think of in this moment. But generally, you know, the music from that time period um, and the stuff that was playing around my house, it really does help me sort of get back into that headspace that I really like. And what year was, would that have been? Oh, man, this was like, uh, I don't know, people who know more about video games are going to yell at me for not knowing the year. But uh, this was like early 2000s, late 90s-ish. Okay, so yeah. so I mean, yeah, and I, that's, you're right. Tony Hawk it was big back then. Mm-hmm. Oh, like, yeah. For me, my video game game, like, game thing that I can remember in terms of, like, soundtracks for that was, like, Mario, like, Mario Brothers was... Yeah. When I was growing up, that was what... I specifically remember listening to Mario Kart with because my brothers would. I we used to have the Nintendo system when I was a kid, and I couldn't play because I was disabled. So my hands, I didn't mm-hmm. have enough dexterity to play. So my brothers, my young, my younger brothers would be like, "Okay, Andrew, you're the oldest kid, so you get to have the Nintendo console in your room, even though you can't play it. You get to have it in your room." <laughs> <laughs> I, I made them like put it there because I was the older kid. So I was like, no, I'm the oldest. I get yeah. to have it. Like, fine. So on principle, yeah. yeah <laughs> so so we, we would put it there, and then I realized that I like they let me try to play, and whatever character I was, I would die almost immediately because I sure. couldn't. I had no dexterity to do anything. So then my brothers were like, okay, we'll let you play. We'll let you watch us play. And you can just watch us. I was, I was like, all right, well, I guess that'll do. So I have, <laughs> like, memories of just watching them play Mario Kart for hours on end on, like, Saturday yeah. mornings with the, sound, yep. with the, like, the soundtrack happening. Right. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I watched a lot of people play video games growing up, but I also played more often on my own. Um, and that's another childhood hobby that I'm working on recovering. Um, fortunately, my girlfriend is very into video games, so that's helping. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just really fun to be able to reconnect with a time when, again, you're just doing things because it's fun, um, and not overthinking it. I think overthinking has been a defining feature of my adult years, uh, thus far. (laughs) Well, I think it's kind of a necessary evil, right? If you're disabled, like you don't really have the, the privilege of not overthinking a lot of things. Um, and so it's completely understandable where this stuff comes from. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that it's not hugely time-consuming and not really frustrating at times. So it's, yeah, I think that, I think it, I would not be surprised if future folks that you talk to for this project have a similar narrative in mind of, you know, the mindset that they grew up in being less um, encumbered upon by you know, the complete understanding of what their disability means. Um, it'll be interesting to see. I, I'm excited to hear other people talk about that and yeah. see whether that's a common experience or not. That's, you know, that, that's such an awesome thing. I, I hope that other guests who are listening uh, bring that to the table. I want to hear all this stuff because, I, mm-hmm. I mean, why I started this project really, and I'll go off on this tangent because it's my show and it's new and sure. whatever. Um, 
why I started this project is because we don't hear disabled stories from kids or disabled stories about childhood a lot unless it's it's unless it's framed in an, in an ableist way through a non-disabled person being like, oh yeah, let me talk about my disabled kid, um, right. which is a narrative. But I, I wanted to hear first-person narratives because I'm obsessed with like kid stuff and I, I've been watching a lot of YouTube shows where kids get like, kids try this and kids eat this. Mm-hmm. And, and I kept noticing, I was like, there are no disabled kids on your panel. There are no right. wheelchair-using kids in your panel. There are no kids with visible disabilities or invisible disabilities that I see here. Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know, we. And also, I listened to another podcast called um, "Grown Ups Read Things They Wrote as Kids," where uh-huh. people go up on stage and just tell stories about, like, read their journals from when they were kids. And right. I was like, I want to hear disabled stories because there's such a rich history of like growing up as a disabled kid where nobody like that nobody's talking about so mm-hmm. i mean that's how this came to be and that's that's kind of how i i just i literally it was one day like two weeks ago where i was like i'm gonna put this on twitter and see what happens and see if people yeah and it blew up rightfully so i think it's a great idea and you know i think that when you're a kid you are who you are and you know in a certain way it there are just traits and even things about how you look and everything that are just sort of constant the whole way through and so you can definitely see um seeds of your adult self uh in your childhood experiences but i think it you're right that disability and childhood you know it's it's ironic right because disability is often equated with childhood even if you are an adult um people treat you like a child and they assume that you're never really going to grow up right but you don't really often get the authentic story of what it is like to grow up disabled um so i think that yeah that's really smart on your part and it's exciting to be part of i'm i i'm really excited about it but let's move on to the next thing i want to ask you about i want to ask you about rustling as a way to get your anger out um yeah i've known you for a number of years now and i gotta say when you when i saw that i was like what (laughs) yeah that's often a surprise yeah so like tell me tell me that tell me how rustling came into part of your like disabled childhood sure so it was actually during the recovery from surgery before fifth grade i was often up late at night because i was uncomfortable and i couldn't sleep and everything hurt um and my dad who is a true champ he has always he's a stay-at-home parent um and so he had always been the person who was there most often for me to you know watch all of this stuff unfold in real time my mom is incredibly supportive and was incredibly supportive throughout my childhood. She was also at work during the day. And so it fell to my dad to do a lot of the day-to-day stuff. Um, And at night, he would often be the one who got up and, you know, to check on me and make sure everything was okay. Um, And there were nights when I just couldn't sleep and it was really frustrating. And so he would turn on the TV because uh, they had positioned me in front of the TV. That was actually, that summer was when I got my first PlayStation because they knew that I was going to be so bored and then I needed stuff to do. And so they finally caved and got me a PlayStation. So there's the connection between all of these stories. But um, one night, PlayStation is the connection between all these stories. Plays. Yeah. This podcast is not sponsored by PlayStation, but if, could it be if though? They, could it? Yeah. This is not an ad, but it could be. Um, so one night we were up late, my dad and I, and 
he was channel surfing, you know, to find something to entertain me. And he landed on professional wrestling. And it was something that he had been into as a child, but I had never really seen it. And so he was like, oh, let's just watch this. It'll be fun, whatever. And I developed a really intense love for professional wrestling for the later years of elementary school. Um, And honestly, you know, I didn't understand at the time, you know, that it's like this choreographed maneuver and that these are all very intricate things. And, you know, they're very talented athletes, but they're in fact not grown men purely beating the shit out of each other, no, right? they're actors, and they, you know, right. it's, a, it's a dance almost. That right, and I have, yeah. like, more artistic appreciation for it now than I did as a kid, but I think back then, it was just, I was, because of all that stuff we were talking about before, of sort of the unruly body um, not doing what you wanted to do. I had a lot of pent-up anger that I didn't really know what to do with and professional wrestling as like a quasi violent activity sort of gave me a safe outlet for all of that rage, which is like, it's good, (laughs) you know, that I chose that outlet as opposed to a million other way more self-destructive things that I could have picked. It's like, oh, you picked grown men in spandex to like channel your frustration. (laughs) This is is fine, you know, whatever. I'm sure my parents were like, we'll take it. Um, But yeah, it ended up being this huge thing to really help with that, but also it just really bonded me with my dad, like being able to watch this together and sort of have an appreciation for it. I mean, he and I have always been close um, and have always really gotten along. But I think that that period of time, you know, when I sort of happened upon this thing that he also really enjoyed, I think that was one of the first things that we really shared. Um, And so, you know, it's hilarious now. Um, Looking back at that was a thing like brought us closer together and helps me process my medical trauma. It's like what a bizarre outlet, you know. It's bizarre, but it's kind of awesome because... (laughs) And it's awesome because I know you too, and you're like such a you're measured, like you're you're a, you're a, a professional, like you know you're a professional disabled person, and so to know that in your journey to become that, you used like Hulk Hogan beating up a guy <laughs> yeah. with, with the chair to like deal with your own ableism, with deal with able, the ableism that was happening around you, is sort of awesome. <laughs> I know. And, you know, I look at it now and there's all this stuff about masculinity and, you know, sexuality and all, all about what that means. As a kid, I was not processing any of that at all. It was just like, oh, this is fun and people are, you know, beating each other up, but nobody's really getting hurt. Um, and I remember when, you know, things sort of started to change in in the sport um, toward the end of the time that I was watching it there were a lot more matches that would actually include real blood. Like people would end up with cuts on their forehead or whatever. And I remember having a very visceral reaction of like, this is not what I want to watch. Right. I was like, I don't actually want to watch people get hurt. I just want to watch whatever was happening before. Um, So I think that that is also like pretty illustrative of how I am as a person. It's like, I don't actually want to, I needed this outlet for all this frustration, but I didn't actually want to see anybody get hurt. Um, And I think that that's like adorable and tender (laughs) of me as a child, that that was where the line was. But yeah, I was was super into it for a few years there and like even watched some of the pay-per-view, you know, my dad would buy the pay-per-view matches, uh, you know, the big deal things that you had to actually go out of your way to To see. To like go and get tickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or to like so, put, put it on your TV and then it would come right. on and like Sunday at eight o'clock the, the fight. 
Yeah. Okay, it's not this is not like low level engagement. Right. I was like all the way. Yeah. Yeah, as a kid. And I just I find that so charming now, you know, because it's so different from how I turned out. Um everybody everybody knows me as sort of like very, you know, no pun intended, very cerebral person and you know, I have I have classes and I'm like intellectual and you know, all of that. Um, and I understand that that's kind of how I come across in a lot of situations. So it's it's funny to be able to sort of spring this part of my past on people. Just looking at um, what you're wearing now, like, and because, right. because you just said cerebral, like, I'm picturing you kind of have this 1930s, like, dandy thing happening. Yeah, thank which, you. Which I'm all about, by the way. I, I support it so much. Thank you. Um, but yeah, I, I can't picture, like, young Carrie sitting in front of, like, a, a big living room television being like yeah beat the crowd like that guy <laughs> yeah i mean it's funny you should see me watch sports now i i'm surprisingly into sports um for somebody that fits my otherwise my profile um it's often surprising to people that i really love sports i remember when my girlfriend figured out that i am actually very very into sports and she was like what did i get myself into this is insane um but yeah as as a kid it really fit with the whole thing that I had going on, you know, kind of the like rough and tumble tomboy persona, um, professional wrestling fit right in there. Um, and now it's just this funny relic from my past. And, you know, when I'm feeling nostalgic, like we were talking about before, sometimes I'll go look up clips on YouTube, you know, of the old matches that not even necessarily stuff that I remember watching as a kid, but just things from that same time period. Um, just to sort of get back in that headspace and remember what that was like. So as an adult now, do you watch that Netflix show Glow and be like, oh yeah, like was that, does it bring back weird, like did you connect with that show at all? You know, I haven't, but that is a strong suggestion. I didn't actually watch any of the women's wrestling leagues when I was growing up, which is weird because I was very into other types of women's sports. Like I was very into women's basketball, um, especially, but I never got into women's wrestling and then, because it wasn't, it just like wasn't part of the shows that I was watching, but you're right. Maybe Glow would sort of push that same button. I should go give it a try. And I mean, Alison Brie is like a national, oh, sure. like she's a national right. treasure. Like, how do you not? Like, so <laughs> that might, that might trigger some like awesome childhood, like nostalgia for you right there. Yeah. I'll report back. Amazing. Uh, Tell me about like you. Tell me about being disabled. Like how your disability affected you, like socially. Were you? I was a loner kid who mm-hmm. didn't have a bunch of friends and who like tried to make, who tried to make friends but never really fit in super well there. Kind sure. of like my experience now as a gay male adult trying to be mm-hmm. part of that group. Uh, did you? Did your disability like? Did you? Would you have a lot of friends? Were you? Kind of like. Like were you accepted? in your social circles? Yes, I was. And I think that part of that um, was that I had other identities that I could play on. Um, I think being a smart kid really helped um, because, you know, people had this other thing that they could associate me with. Um, And when you're growing up, that's kind of what people want to do. They want to put you in a category. Um, And there weren't any other disabled people that were at my school who were in you know, standard or advanced classes. And so I was sort of the only one. And so they couldn't put me in with anybody else who was like me. So they just did the next best thing and sort of put me in with all the other smart kids. Um, I think that it does help um, in, 
it did help and it does help in ways that I'm understanding more and more as an adult um, that I am a white cis woman who is ambulatory. I was not a wheelchair user growing up um, and I'm still not. And so being able to sort of pass in certain contexts or at least gain admission into able-bodied environments. I think, you know, I understand that obviously on a lot deeper level now as an adult and an activist than I did as a kid, but I think that the combination of those privileges with um, kind of intelligence as my main calling card in in the school environment um, really helped. I will say that I didn't really face any bullying in the traditional sense as a kid, um, and I, I know that that is extremely fortunate on my part. I don't know if it's like just me or the people I grew up with or what. Um, but I didn't really get any of the, the traditional stuff. I mean, the one time that it really did matter in, in a way that was hurtful um, was in middle school, obviously. And But the stuff that happened was more like smart kid warfare. You know, it wasn't just like straight up ableism. You know, it's not like I'm being pushed into somebody's locker and nobody's like calling me names or whatever. It was just more stuff like people, you know, the, the short version is that people implying that I was using my disability as an advantage to get things I didn't actually deserve, right? Which is a, a narrative that you hear a lot about yeah. disabled. Well, like once we reach a certain age, right? It's like once you're not a, an adorable kid anymore, all of a sudden you must be taking advantage and like getting undue. Of some you know, like system that, but, yeah. yeah of, of, of a system that nobody realized at the time that was already able to, so of course you were. Right. And like, right. of course you were. Right. And, you know, just the, the idea that, you know, there were certain, um, certain achievements that I hadn't earned, you know, that had been given to me out of like pity or whatever, just that strong implication, that sort of thing. That was the only kind of bullying I ever faced, which honestly is like some pretty high level, um, high level for, for middle school, like, yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. For kids, I mean, this is, these were smart people victimizing other smart people, right? So they knew what buttons to push. Like that's, um, some, Disney, that's some Disney channel. Like that's like, like, that's not, that would not happen in, in, in like that didn't happen in my middle school thing. My the, sure. big, the biggest fight that I had in middle school was like, oh my god, you stole my pogs! Like right, what? right, exactly. I mean, honestly, I think part of it is also being a girl. You know, kind of navigating the the sphere of middle school girls, which to this day strikes terror in my heart. You know, <laughs> um, I I think that you know I was not called upon to prove my toughness or whatever in a way that a lot of middle school boys are when they're put sort of through this masculinity test. Um, but I, I, girls know how to push your buttons in middle school. Um, and that certainly happened, you know, and I, it's not like I'm holding a grudge against anybody now. I'm, you know, 30 and it's like, let it go. <laughs> you know, it's definitely, I don't hold it against anybody. And we were all, you know, just trying to figure ourselves out, but it's pretty, it's like pretty impressive in hindsight that I had such smart bullies, you know, that they just knew um, that, you know, to imply that I had not actually earned my achievements uh, would be the thing that would get me the most, you know, that that was the thing that would bother me. Um, but yeah, I think that overall, you know, that aside, that was its own, that was sort of an outlier. Um, and, you know, it was a big outlier. It obviously affects you when that stuff happens. But by and large, I never felt um, ostracized because of my disability from any social circles um, beyond that 
particular incident, which is really fortunate. Um, and, you know, I still, having grown up in California and lived there for the vast majority of my life, I am still in touch with a lot of people from my childhood. And that's really fun, you know, to be able to see kind of the adult that everybody's grown into. Um, and I've always felt very supported by the people I grew up with, sort of when they check in on me and see what I'm up to. Um, people have had nothing but good things to say. So I have, I will say I have not heard from any of the people that bullied me in middle school. So who knows? You were getting a leg up on them. Because, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Who knows if they think about all of this, but, um, you know, I think overall I, I didn't face any of the sort of traditional, um, hardships socially that you would associate with being disabled as a kid. Like I do, I do wonder for myself as a disabled Kid. I I was a wheelchair user, so I was very markedly disabled as a mm-hmm. kid, and and I still I still very much am, uh, very like very visually like when you see me, you know right away, you can you right. can surmise right away. Whereas your level of CP, if you were just to stand still, I'm not like I wouldn't I would know because I know what CP looks like, but right. the average person might not know. So like I do wonder what my experience of childhood would be like if I had. If I had more of a passing privilege than I do, I mean, I had a similar childhood as a disabled person in that I was intelligent and I was very smart and I knew how to, but see, I went the other way where I manipulated, (laughs) I manipulated my way in and out of things because I knew my, just like the thing you were talking about where everybody was, where where the smart kids felt like you were getting an advantage. I was like, (laughs) yes, I am getting an advantage and I'm going to use that for all it's worth. Watch me go. Yeah, I totally did. I was the kind of kid that was like, oh, I can use this to my advantage to get out of this or to get out of this thing or to like mm-hmm. bypass this. Sure, I will. Let me, like, let me try. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I think that I never, I've been so obsessed with playing, you know, playing the game by the rules, so to speak, my entire life. And I think part of that is because I'm disabled, right? And I always felt subconsciously that I needed to compensate um, by being the most morally upstanding person in the entire universe. Um, And I think the way that that sort of internalized ableism also collides with um, gender sort of manifested in, well, I have to be the best good girl there ever was, you know, just like super well behaved. And I think part of it also, I was a prankster growing up like before this type of stuff really set in before internalized ableism and you know understanding of gender and all that stuff kind of set in in my later youth probably like you know starting in middle school I actually was like really rambunctious and would pull pranks on people all the time especially my dad and my older sister I'm so sorry Um, you know I was kind of a jerk like I would just go around and you know just be like laying booby traps everywhere and, you know, breaking into people's rooms and going through their stuff and, you know, everything from like harmless to like looking back on it. I never did anything really awful, but I look back on it and I'm like, why did you do that? Like, you know, why would you do that to another person? And I think that, you know, there's always been this feeling um, because, you know, once my understanding of, of my disability and what it means to quote unquote be a woman kind of set in. I, again, I overcorrected um, and I've sort of spent my adult years trying to like crawl back to a happier middle ground and sort of have it all. You know, it's like be an upstanding citizen, treat other people nicely, but also not everything has to be the biggest deal. 
Yeah, yeah, I know. See, I had I had a similar experience of like wanting to be the best, but also mm-hmm. also being like, where are the loopholes that I can? <laughs> like, I and I. It's so funny when I was two, I was at the physical therapist, and my doctor was like, they were doing a test with me or something, and my mom was in one of those rooms behind the glass, and the doctor was with mm-hmm. her. And the doctor was like, see your kid over there? Watch him. He's going to manipulate you really hard. You know, he's manip- he's manipulating the, the therapist assistant right now. Like, watch. And so she always told me that story and giggled because I, now I hope that I use my manipulation for, you know, good things. And <laughs> for good, for right. Things that are, you know, but, but I think disability, disabled kids are forced to, to understand that right away and to look for loopholes almost immediately because... We un- we even though it's not been explained to us yet, we're in a system that doesn't that isn't made for us. So how right. so we're forced to figure out ways around that as as, mm-hmm. as sometimes and sometimes it's not the best way, but it's how we navigated our dealing with ableism before we were given language for it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Um, this was an awesome conversation. I, yeah, I love like I love that this is the first episode. And I love hearing like I want to hear more about your like I want I'm definitely gonna have you back at some point to tell me to like finish the chapters of Carrie's life. As sure, a, of course. As a we can go into all the sexual confusion of the teen years on, on another episode. Oh, I'm so ready. I feel like we should. I feel like we should revisit it for the other podcast that I do. That would be, that would be so great. Yeah, definitely. Um, Anytime. Um. But before I let you go, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to cap this off. So mm-hmm. I'm going to come up with, if you could go back and talk to your disabled self right now, if 30-year-old Carrie could talk to, like, 10-year-old disabled Carrie, what advice would you mm-hmm. give to your disabled kid self? Oh, man, that's a good question. Remember to have fun. Oh, it's so simple. Yeah, I think that that is something that got lost with time. Uh, and, you know, if I I had a good grasp on it as a kid and I sort of lost it um, in the middle and in adulthood, I've tried to bring it back. But I, I wish that, you know, younger me knew to just lean all the way in and that life is to be enjoyed you know there are other points obviously but if you're not enjoying yourself like what are you doing right uh so to remember to have fun i think would be the the one sentence version that's such a big part of it and to remember to be like to remember that disability can also be fun like mm-hmm. right and putting like but it sounds like your experience of disabled childhood was fun in part because of your disability so that's so good to hear um sure and the professional wrestling. Let's not uh, forget. Of course, I mean, I mean, <laughs> early nineties, like how, how, of course, of right, course, of course. Um, Carrie, it's such a fun conversation. Thank you for being the very first guest on this show. Uh, of course, so excited. Um, I f- will put all your stuff in the show notes, but just so that right. we can hear you say it. How do people get a hold of you, and how can they follow your work? Sure. Uh, the best place to find me uh, is on Instagram and Twitter. I am at Wade Theory in both places. Um, and I've been kind of off and on social media over the past few months because the internet is a hellhole. But I'm trying to be better about being on there more consistently. And I promise that I will be happy to see you if you find me there. So Wade Theory is the handle. 
you should all follow Carrie's work because, like, if you want to if you want to read some good things on disability that like make you go, wow, I never, like, if you listen to my other podcast, I'm gonna shamelessly plug myself. If you listen to our episode, which, wow, already almost two years ago, Carrie. Wow, that's wild. Like, oh my goodness! But if you listen to that, I I quote Carrie's work like in about five or six episodes. That's how good <laughs> it is. Um, but Carrie, this was such a fun thing to do, uh, and thank you so much. Of course, thanks for having me, and congratulations on the new show. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Yeah. Bye. All right, so that's it, friends. That's the very first episode of When I Was a Disabled Kid. I hope you enjoyed this jaunt down disability kid memory lane with Carrie. I thank her for for being so open with me about her stuff and and starting the journey with this new show. Um, I would love for you to be a guest. If you want to be a guest, you can email me at whenIwasADisabledKid at gmail.com. You can follow the show on all of our new social media stuff at DisabledKidPod on Twitter, the same on Facebook. You can follow me directly, Andrew Gerza, at, 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 at Andrew Gerza on Twitter, or follow my website, www.andrewgerza.com. You can, we're gonna, I mean, eventually I'd like for us to have some thing, some like merch and stuff happening, but I want to see how the show goes first. If you want to support this venture as it gets bigger, you can do so on Patreon by heading over to patreon.com slash cripple content and you can put a dollar there if you like the show um and we're eventually gonna have some perks but i want to see how the show goes first you'll probably get you can get the show early if you subscribe and you can also help support my other show uh about sex and disability by subscribing there so if you want to do that that's great this show is fully independently run by me so any help we can get there to help disability content get out there i would totally appreciate it but enough rambling and i hope you enjoyed the show come back next week for another awesome episode of when i was a disabled kid Copyright Notice When I Was a Disabled Kid was presented, created, and produced by Andrew Gerza and Cripple Content Creations with music by Jesse Schonauer. Any and all materials, including graphics, audio recordings, and music, are property of the owner and cannot be used or distributed without express permission. Copyright Cripple Content Creations 2018